Please turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Because He cares for you. Lord, may that reality, may that truth, which has been purchased and demonstrated through the sacrificial offering of Your eternal Son upon a cross, that You care for every individual member of the Bride of Christ. And may that power, may that reality be the forming principle, the sanctifying principle that causes us to Lean upon You. Trust Your Word. To the glory of the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This passage this morning is saying to every one of us that when we are not trusting the clear prescriptions, commands of God's Word. It's because pride and arrogance in us is rising and humility is falling away from us. Let me, let me just spell that out. The reason that we refuse to obey God, meaning here, he, he speaks. The reason that we, at times, so easily just say, um, disregard him, is because of unbelief in what he is saying that it's actually for our good. Or another way to say that unbelief is that flows out of, we're going to see in our text, pride. The reason we, for instance, find it really difficult when we have sinned against our spouse or kids or a friend. We know we're wrong and to actually walk up and say, I was wrong. Why we disobey the doing of that is to the extent we're proud. We're not humble. The reason why evangelicalism is filled all over this country with professing Christians who are merely church attenders and not functionally part 
of the life and the bodies in which they may attend in a service has to do with disobedience to God's Word, which flows out of pride. The reason many professing evangelicals to have no place, no paradigm in their life that God gets the first fruits of their crops, of their income, ownership. Because that would mean they'd have to admit that no matter what they do in life to earn, they'd have to admit, oh really, that is actually owing all to God and not me. So pride says, there's no way I can do that. The reason we slow down in our lives concerning prayer time, Bible reading, is because at the root we do not, at those times, really believe that this book, God's Word, has something really significant for us to actually help us. And that comes out of pride. So, the question for us this morning is, are you anxious over any of those or 378 other examples I could have given concerning God's clear directives in Scripture. Does God's Word in areas make you just nervous? I I can't do that. That's the question that should be floating around in our heads and hearts through the rest of this sermon. Because here's the rub of the text before we look at it. The reason that Peter, in verse 7, deals with anxieties in us. See that in verse 7? Casting all your anxieties on Him is because He's dealing with the problem that we all wrestle with. By definition, as a Christian, the problem of pride, arrogance, Lack of humility. It is our pride that causes us, produces in us such confidence in easily setting aside God's directives to us in the Word. The call to humility in this text. Now, we're going to see in the context, the call to humility in the context of submission to leadership in a local church and then all of that local body clothing themselves with humility. There's something there about not mere I attend a service and whoo-hoo, but your life is accountable somewhere. Peter knows that call to humility produces It produces anxiety. It produces nervousness in so many of us. And that's why he's going to come to cast those fears on him. So let's go through the text and watch the flow of how he unfolds this. We're starting there in verse 5, okay? But so remember. He has just said, we saw last week in verses 1 to 4, he was addressing directly the leaders, the the elders, the overseers, who had the responsibility of shepherding the flock in the local church. Now, in verse 5, he says, Now, likewise, you who are younger, be subject 
to the elders. Now, that's the ESV. And that's a pretty good translation of the original. The reason I say that, because if you are looking at the NIV, they totally blew it, in my opinion. Young men, this is how they translate it, young men, be submissive to those who are older. And that's not Peter's meaning. In verse 1, he used the word presbyteroid, the plural, the elders, and he uses the same word here again. In verse 1, he clearly meant church leadership, overseers within the community, not merely older people. So, Peter is not saying, hey, you're 28 years old, see that guy over there, he's 33, he's older, you've got to be submissive to him. He's not saying that. So he means the same thing he meant in verse 1 with the word elders, shepherds, overseers. And then here with the word submit clearly implies a a type of authority to be in submission to. So that's unambiguous. Elders is unambiguous. Then that brings us to then who are the, and it's one word in Greek, the younger here. Does it just actually mean 20-something guys? Or does it mean something else? Now, it could. I'll tell you what I think he means. This is where I come down. I think he means everybody in the church. I think what he's doing is that it's a play on words. Where elders has an official uh, function, it's an official office in the church. Elders, younger meaning everybody else. If you're not an elder, be submissive to them. Now, let me, let me quote from Henry Alford 150 years ago or so from his commentary. This is how he argues it, and I agree with him. He says, You younger be subject to the elders. Quote, In what sense are we to take that word younger and the word elders here? One part of our answer will be very clear that elders must be in the same sense as above in verse 1. That is its official historical sense of presbyters or leaders in the local church. This being so, we have now some clue to the meaning of younger. That it cannot mean younger in age merely, though this is regarded Men would generally be so. But, just as the word elders had its official sense of superintendence of the church, so younger likewise means those who are under that leadership of the elders. So, it will mean here the rest of the church as opposed to the elders. End quote. So, so you follow me? Elders, rule well this way. Shepherd this way. This is what you owe the church. Likewise, church, this is what you owe the elders to. To be submissive. Then, notice, he says what everyone, 
elders and non-elders owe to each other in verse 5b. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So here he refers to all of our interpersonal relationships within the church. Whether you're an elder, a senior pastor, a 14-year-old kid, an elderly woman, married, single, all of you believers in that community God has put you, clothe yourselves with humility in your dealing with one another. Now, let me quote, some of you love Spurgeon, you read him every morning, and there's, he has a way with words. So, Here's the way surgeons... What's humility? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 150 years ago, preacher in London. Quote, The best definition of humility I ever heard was to think rightly of ourselves. Oh, how true. He goes on. In a company where certain people were displaying their spiritual attainments, it was noticed that one devout person remained silent, and a talkative man turned to him and asked, Have you no sanctification? He replied, I never had any to boast of, and I hope I never shall have. The more high in grace, the more low in self-esteem. End quote. So, we're supposed to clothe ourselves with a right understanding, a biblical understanding of who we are. And if we've attained any maturity, to know there's nothing to boast about. It's only by God's grace. And it will be only by God's grace that you'll hold on to that maturity tomorrow. So now, according to this text here in 1 Peter chapter 5, here's a question. Why is humility in the flow of the text so important? Just look at it. It's right in front of you. The answer is 5b. The reason we are to put on every day humility toward each other in the body of Christ is for, that for means because, here's the reason, God is opposed. He is against the proud. Why do we Professing Christians at times refuse to come under submission in the local church. Why do we refuse to become a functional, accountable member in our lives that, that, is, that is accountable for other people and to other people? Well, you can say the answer from this text two ways. Pride, it's arrogance that turns away from God's clarity. Or, you say it this way, but it means the same thing. You can't separate them in Peter's mind. 
unbelief. It's not trusting God. Which comes from pride. Why is God against that? Because at the very core, pride is saying and acting towards God. This is the essence of sin, the sin in the garden. It's why God is opposed to or hates sin. It is saying, okay, God, you've spoken. I, I see that. Here's my vote. No confidence in what you have to say there. And that is belittling. God's against it because God is God and He loves His perfections and glory. And when a peon creature made in His image like me says, No! He can do nothing other than hate that reality. Thank God for the Gospel. And so He saves us through Christ and the Gospel and He says, Now I'm putting you on a track to fight against this. Trust me. He loves the glory that it brings Him when we rely upon Him and trust what He says to do. Pride. Let, let, let me, let's listen to the way God in Scripture speaks about pride. This is not a different God, as I'm going to quote from the Old Testament. It's the same God and loving Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have come to, if you have come to Him. In Hosea chapter 13, verses 4 to 6, God says, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I cared for you in the wilderness in the land of drought, as they had pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot Me. In Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 7. It says to God's people, Israel, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some stuff to you. I'm going to give you land. Spouse, maybe. Children, maybe. A house, maybe. A, a good job, maybe. I'm going to give some stuff to you. And he says, Beware. Last when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply, then your heart becomes proud. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and you say in your heart, it is my power and my strength that have made me this wealth. It, it is pride, in other words, that refuses to love God as 
the fountain of all things. It is pride. Just You can't separate that from this. That refuses God's written word through the prophets and the apostles. This is how he says it through Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 9 to 10. I will destroy the pride of Judah. And the pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words. Who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? You're talking about spiritual gifts. You're talking about differing giftings God has given you in this life. And he says something that should be penetrating. What do you have? How does he say that? Now my mind just went blank. That you did not receive. And if you did receive it, why do you hear it? Boast as if you did not receive it. See, it's pride. It is that that looks away from God and looks to people for praise. That's how Jesus said it in Matthew 23, 6. And they, these religious leaders here, love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men. Rabbi. The sinful inclinations of the human heart of pride cannot trust God. Now I said it. See, here's, let me just put this in there. If you're born again, that's the battle we're in. If you're not born again, you're not really in a battle. If you're born again, what has happened is the Holy Spirit who is the personification of the ability to love and submit to God is in you. And it happens. But He has left within you for this time the sin nature, which by its definition cannot, by its fruit called pride, cannot submit or obey God trustingly. Why? Because the essence of trusting God, it's the essence of looking to another. And pride doesn't like to rely on another. It likes its own self-satisfaction, independence. It can't stand looking weak. But true trusting of God, by definition, is weak. It is at its core. Sin, weakness, finite, there's an infinite, glorious Creator. By definition, you're weak. And the mercy of God is for Him to say, trust me. That's mercy for Him to tell you that. To tell me that. Because that's the only place we creatures, finite, dependent beings by nature will find true and everlasting meaning. Not in independence, because that's against nature. There truly is no such thing. And Judgment Day, 
is what will reveal that clearly to everybody. God hates His creatures not trusting Him as the infinite, glorious fountain of all satisfaction in meaning and provision. Okay, how is this good news? Have you clung to Christ? Is He yours? Okay, this is why it's good news. Genuine believers, born again people, they hear God is opposed to the proud. And it's not bad news, it's good news if the Christ is in you because that moves us once again to say, I don't want Him. I love Him. He's in me. I don't want God to be against me. What you want if you're born again is grace. And so He says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Not because humility earns grace. It's because humility by its definition is emptiness saying, fill me. That's what it is. It's like what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, as Spurgeon said, true humility is thinking rightly of ourselves. Everyone is poor in spirit. Jesus' point is, blessed are you if you realize it. Because theirs is the kingdom of God. He's not saying you earn it. He's saying that's the expression of reliance, trust, and receiving God's mercy. So we're called because of the reality of who God is and we are. We're called to clothe ourselves with humility toward each other broken, imperfect, sinful beings. Okay, How, Peter? Help us! Verse 6 is the answer to that question. He tells us how. Look at it. Humble yourselves. Now, therefore, see the word therefore? Because of what we just saw. God's opposed to pride, gives grace. That's why you need to clothe yourselves with humility. How do I do it? This is how you do it. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. He's saying, don't function in life, in your marriage, in church life, out of self-sufficiency or with the desire to exalt yourself. But bow to God's words, His directives, His revelation of Himself, His promises to you. And in the context of Peter, to His providential hand on your experiences. That's what He said in 4. Remember? 19, the last verse. Those of you who suffer according to the will of God, here it is. Here it is. This is humility. This is what it means to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Entrust your lives to Him. 
So he says, here's the key to humbling yourselves before each other. It is, this is the logic of the text, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Okay, let's do that. Okay, Peter, why? He answers it. See that little phrase? So that, that's the answer. That's the purpose. He says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time God may exalt you. That's what the text says. Peter says, do you want true Genuine, everlasting exaltation by God in Christ. Do you want it? You should say, yes! Then humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that you can bear the fruit of clothing yourself with humility towards other brothers and sisters in the local church. This is not new. Jesus used almost word for word that kind of talk in the Gospels. Let me just give you one example from Luke chapter 18, verses 11 to 14. You remember, Jesus tells the story. The Pharisee, standing by himself over here in the temple, he prayed this way, I thank you, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all that I get. Jesus goes on. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus comments, I tell you the truth, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter's saying, so that you will be exalted in the proper time, the due time, in the right way. And it's not by your own hand. It's by God. I think what Peter means by in due time here is the same flow he's meant throughout this letter over this last year. He constantly has a future perspective of the coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, when He's revealed on that day, Etc. It's future, it's coming. That's what I think he particularly refers to here. So that he, at the proper time, will exalt you. 
That's why for Peter, the fuel, the gasoline for this whole letter, for living the Christian life, for suffering, for trusting, for glorifying God, is constantly rooted in His promise. The second coming and what that means to all believers. What that means here so that He would exalt you in due time. Remember, Paul, sum, Paul summarized the Gospel. Well, he does. He gives you an outline form in chapter 8 of Romans. Whom He foreknew, He predestined. Whom He predestined, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He glorified. That's still future. That hasn't happened. The resurrection of the body and the book of life being opened has not happened to Paul or you or me yet. And he points us there. And he says, that's the power to humble yourself. Now, keep your eyes right there on God's holy written Word. Because what we see in the connection between verse 6 and verse 7, I think is utterly crucial for this entire morning's sermon in this text. Verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Verse 7, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now I'm going to point, I'm only doing this because if you have it, it's, it's, just, it's crucial and I think it's really huh, wise for me to do this. If you have an NIV, here, I, I keep, for the life of me, I can't figure. I, other than I know it's a different kind of philosophy of translation, dynamic equivalent, but they just hear in, in the dynamic equivalents, they, do, they miss it. They totally miss it, and they absolutely obscure what Peter actually says. They do this by putting a period at the end of verse 6. This is how the NIV translates it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, or God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Period. Verse 7. New sentence. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. What they did in that English there is they made verse 7 a new sentence. And in the original, it's not a new sentence. Peter is not saying, there's two things for you to do, Christian. Humble yourself, and secondly, cast your anxieties. Got it? It's not what he's saying. Verse 6, he says, is the main thing to do. In verse 7, in the Greek, is a participle. It means it's modifying. Particularly, it means it's telling you how to do verse 6. The main verb of verse 6 is humble yourself. That's an action. Do it! How? By casting your anxieties on Him. That's why the King James, the New American Standard Bible, the ESV, they translate it correctly. 
Showing you, leaving the casting. You hear in the NIG, you can hear modify, humble. How? By casting. Today, a football coach might be saying to his team before the game, play well today, guys. Paying attention to fundamentals. He doesn't mean do two separate equal things. Play well and pay attention. He means play well by paying attention. To fundamentals. Does anybody follow me yet? Give me a... Humble yourself, Peter says. How? By taking those anxieties about humility and casting them on God. Who cares for you? What is it about casting anxieties upon God that's connected to humility? There's hundreds and hundreds of examples you can give. Let's just go to a few I've already given. You're a sinner. And you're born again, and you actually do sin against your spouse or your kids or a friend, and now you're convicted. Humility means saying, I was wrong. Forgive me. Ooh, that's, that's vulnerable. You're supposed to do something. And you realize, I don't know what I'm doing. Humility is not afraid to ask for help. Pride is. Humility makes it so vulnerable. Say, I'm going to look like an idiot because doesn't everybody know how to do this VCR? Oh, see, I just dated myself. Whatever it is. Humility means not pursuing what you do for the praise of other people. Humility means caring for, loving others, which may mean doing, because we live in this world, very lowly tasks that no one knows about. It might mean you're, Jesus, take your sandals off guys I'm going to wash your feet and, and they couldn't believe it that, you, don't, you don't do that that's why he did it humility means you might not rightly always be defending yourself and thus you cannot control the image of yourself that you want to control in other people. Pursuing humility, just in short, in other words, it means it brings all of these risks of life. It could bring a bad reputation to you. It could, it, 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 pride wants people to think this, that, and the other. Humility is the opposite of that. 
It may mean that you won't be appreciated like you yearn to be or noticed. And if you don't believe that, ask the humblest man who ever lived. His humility led him one day as he's bleeding all over. These people listened to him as their teacher. And it led to this. Finish it! Kill him! Crucify him! That's vulnerable. And that produces anxiety. That's, I mean, that, if you follow the text, that's why I think he does this. Pursue that. Paul, be humble. Follow, follow Jesus' words. And it's very different than you and me. Follow his words. Paul, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how much you're going to have to suffer for the next 35 years for my name's sake. There's a way in sinful Paul that produces anxiety. How are you going to be humble, Paul, and follow Christ in that? That's the answer. That's the answer to the tension of humble yourself before other sinful people in the local body of Christ. The tension between doing that and the anxieties that many of us feel to one degree or another. The only answer is go vertical and cast it onto God. And what does that mean, cast? That, that word cast, it's the word they used when you got your coat, you don't want to carry it any longer, take it and throw it up on the donkey. Put it on the colt. The colt, the donkey is there to bear it for you. And he says, God wants to bear it for you. Listen to how Jesus speaks to us. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived my ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, the one true God, who works on behalf of those who wait for Him. Now, one non-biblical author, I'll go back to Spurgeon to listen to his mastery of words. Charles Spurgeon writes, there is nothing Christ dislikes more than for people to make show of Him and not use Him. He loves to be worked. Christ is a great worker. He always was for His Father and now He loves to be a great laborer for His brothers. The more burdens you put on His shoulders, the better He will love you. Cast your burdens on Him. End quote. Okay. Are you, 
There's a logic. Let me just go through the logic real quickly. Foundationally. Cast all the fears and anxieties that humility bring, the idea of humility even brings to you. I can't do that because what if? Cast those on God. That's the power to humble yourself under God's mighty hand, which is the way to humble yourself before other human beings, even if they spit on you now. Practically then, okay, how do we do that? How do we cast the fears? I mean, that's the whole point. I don't know. I don't try to say, I want fears today. I just have them. They're there. That's what anxiety is, isn't it? That's why we talk about, what do you feel? You, you got butterflies in your belly? You just, you're, you're, it's in knots. Okay. How do we do that? The answer is, you do it by trusting the second half of verse 7. In specific relationship to your particular fear or anxiety. Casting all your anxieties on Him. Here it is. Because He cares for you. In other words, how do we do it? You walk by faith. Not by blind faith. No, no. You want, you trust that promise. You believe Him when He says that to you. That promise, notice, it is connected to the command. The command is, cast your anxieties. The promise is, He cares for you. The promise is meant to show us how to obey the command to cast our anxieties. He says, because look, if you cast it, He will take it. You can trust Him because He actually, really cares for you. Believer, that is not true, generally speaking, for every human being. It's not what Peter's saying here. He's talking to the church. If you believe in Him, you've fled to Him, you've embraced Christ as your Savior, do you not know that it's not an accident? Do you understand that when He went to the cross, He did not just die for you if you can somehow now save yourself. But He purchased all of your salvation. No, no, you who has a name, has a mom and has a dad, has a life, has a particular separate center of consciousness. He's saying, God cares for you. 
And what that means, it has to mean at least this. You can trust Him. Because if you take, because this is what anxiety is, is it not? We can't let it go because we feel like we'll be out of control. At least in our mind. Even though we can't control it. We, we want to hold on to it. But if we cast it prayerfully upon Him, it means trust Him that He will not stand by and let things develop in your life without His caring purposes. He's saying your attentive Heavenly Father will act. Trust Him. He will not always act the way we would or the way we think He should. But thank God for that. He's eternal. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He knows the beginning from the end. And He sees all the connections, past, present, and future, that you won't be around to see that have impact on His every providential care of your life as a believer. So casting our cares upon Him means trusting God to handle this or that or any other situation in your life. And so let me now just take what we've heard as we're going to close here and apply it to what Peter's applying it to. The fear and the anxiety in this text of being submissive to eldership in a local congregation and becoming accountable part of a local body. This one, the one down the street, or ten thousands of other churches. This is the context. And that produces anxiety. And disobedience to that has to do with pride and arrogance. So, that means if you've been a Christian long enough You've experienced enough. And so, let's say that you have been absolutely burned by somebody in the local church. Or somebody's. Or you have been burned by unbiblical and abusive church leadership. His point in this text is that the answer to your problem and your pain is not continued disobedience to God's Word. Your answer is God. The answer is to cast all of those fears upon Him. Because you can trust Him because He is trustworthy. He cares for you. See, the answer is get the gospel right and function in a local church body. Clothe yourselves with humility towards others. So let me just say look, the, we, we have different ideas today. 
Why do I say local church body? Or some of us call it membership. Whether it's actual, whether you sign a piece of paper or churches that don't have it. I used to be at churches that never had membership. You can tell who were members and who weren't. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about those whose lives are there. You can see it. You can smell it. You can taste it. They're battling. They're fighting. They're laughing with that local congregation. That's where God has them in their life right now. You can tell those and you can tell those who I attend church. It is the attending church that the New Testament does not have an, an idea of. With the one another's, with the clothe yourselves, where there is leadership, there is structure, there's function. And we have millions of evangelicals running around. Think everything just fine. I go to church. I heard a few sermons this week on the internet. And that's not New Testament church life. But I know Peter knows, the Holy Spirit knows through him, that many professing Christians are scared out of their minds to be a part. And the answer is, trust God. Cast the anxiety upon Him. The answer isn't blindly trust leaders in this local church or any other local church or even other, the members of that church. No, the answer is trust God's Word. You go in there, not blindly. You know what Jesus said about that. You both fall in the ditch. You do it with your Bible open. You've got one. But you realize You're clothing yourself with humility towards imperfect leadership. Imperfect people. And you do it with the Bible open. All of, if we've been Christian long enough, numbers of us have been parts, members of other churches. That's the way life is, and I think it's fine. Okay? There are good reasons God moves people. And at times God moves people from one church to another, whether it's work, location, or, you know, I just think He's leading me away. That's fine, but God never leads people to no church. He never leads people to just be attenders in the way they do life and don't get known and don't be vulnerable. The bottom line of this passage, as I close, is radically God-centered. He's saying as we do church life, cast your fears, your apprehensions, your anxieties on God. That will grow in us the ability to humble ourselves before each other. So, that's, that's my plea from the text always to all of us. Do not turn away from the caring, loving arms of God the Father. The text is clear. He cares for you. Believe it. Trust Him. This process of resisting pride, humbling ourselves before each other, which is rooted in our prayer life with the Word of God open, 
in submitting and humbling ourselves before His mighty hand by casting our anxieties upon Him because I really believe, Father, You have this situation, that situation in Your hands and You care for me. So as we pass out the bread and the cup, this is what we're doing. What we do here is God has given us this tangible ordinance in the church to perform and to do as the body of Christ. To do it in community. And as we will eat the bread and drink the cup, what that means is you are physically getting this tangible gift to say, I'm going to eat that promise that He cares for me. I'm going to eat that command. Cast your anxieties upon God, because He cares for you. I'm going to drink the blood that purchased the reality that He cares for me. And you put your name in there. Father, I beg that You continue to show And I do it with great confidence because of the blood of Christ to show this loving care in particular areas that only You know in each heart and soul in here over these next ten or so minutes. Minister strongly to us by the presence and working of Your Spirit. Amen.